Welcome to A Life in Biography. My guest today is Kathleen Brady, author of a new biography of Francis and Claire, The Struggles of the Saints of Assisi. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, let's begin with uh, telling our listeners something about yourself, the books you've written, and then we'll get into why you wrote this particular book. Well, before writing this latest one about Francis and Claire of Assisi, Two Saints, I wrote a biography of Ida Tarbell, the muckraker and the, the journalist who did an expose of John D. Rockefeller, and also of Lucille Ball, who probably needs no uh, explanation whatsoever. And in terms of Francis, I, you know, this was not something that I wanted to uh, ever thought in my life that I would be interested in writing about the saints. But one day in a florist shop, in, in the window of, the, of a florist shop on Madison Avenue in New York, I saw this very compelling wooden statue of a saint. I didn't know who it was. And although it was wood, the eyes were so fierce. And I, I really, I decided it was, uh, probably improbable as it was. It had to be Ignatius Loyola, who'd been a warrior and founded the Jesuits. And I complimented the manager or the owner of this shop for having a statue of Ignatius Loyola. And he said, are you crazy? That is Francis of Assisi. <laughs> and I said, well, I was very embarrassed because this was a beautifully, beautiful, horribly expensive shop. And I always felt a bit intimidated when I went in there. So I said to him, well, without their robes, they all, all the saints look alike. And I walked off with what with little dignity I could summon. And I thought, you know, I have just really something here. And when I looked at the statue again, I saw, uh, you know, there was a bird, there was a flower, there were the attributes of Francis, but I... I, di I didn't see that. I just saw those eyes. And so even though I was... In and pretty much finished with the process of what lapsing from the Catholic Church. I found myself reading these books that I, you know, Lives of Francis, and sometimes my eyes would swim because it was the old story that I didn't. I mean, the, it was uh, it was it was quite a personal experience, but nonetheless, I prevailed. And the person I was certainly not going to. When I thought, I think I have to write a biography, I thought, well, I'm, and I'm not going to pay much attention to Claire because all she wanted to do was be poor and hungry. That was pretty much what I had been taught for, you know, a good woman who wanted to suffer for God. But I found out she was a fighter who outwitted a pope. And um, you really can't tell the story of one of them, in my view without the story of the other. They were entwined. It was not a romance, as many have written, but um, it was a friendship and a bond and a relationship that was very important. Yes, and I think that's what makes your biography different, is that uh, it's, it's a kind of dual biography, a kind, kind of what Plutarch does at the very beginning of biography, setting one life off against another to, to understand uh, really both lives a little better uh, by, by paralleling them in that in that sense. You begin your biography uh, really with, in a sense, an autobiography. So why did you do that? Well, you know, I 
sort of felt I had to come clean about the whole process. I felt, I must say, I felt I was stealing fire from the gods or something. I felt that I was going up against the Catholic Church, and I found that very hard. I mean, as it turns out, that's certainly an exaggeration. People have told me who that who have read my book that for some reason that they can't explain they have forgiven the church they're not going back to the church but they have forgiven it because of what they've read I do not understand that I've asked them for page numbers they can't supply them but um I I really I I felt I had to do that and I couldn't just present this book and and hide if I was writing about their struggle, I had to write about my struggle too. So uh, I'm going to have that's you asked a very good question. I might, as you always do on your podcast, <laughs> and I, oh. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to uh, think about that some more. But well, well, I'm going to think about it some more right now. <laughs> uh, uh, what what interests me about your your beginning, and I think it's very engaging. Uh, and one of the things that readers often don't of uh, biographies don't get is really a sense of the biographer. Uh, the biographer doesn't want to put himself or herself forward because in most cases, because the biographer knows, unless there's someone like Norman Mailer, let's say, writing about Marilyn Monroe, uh, a reader's going to get irritated. That is, this is, this is, I came to read about these saints. I didn't, you know, I didn't come to, to read about the, the biographer, but in your case, it, it seems to me different because you're, you're dealing with, with two powerful themes that obviously have a bearing on your life. And by the way, I was raised a Catholic, so I, I understand <laughs> why, what you're saying uh, and, and uh, a lapsed Catholic as well. Um, what, what, what strikes me about your, your introduction to your biography and also, in a sense, one of the themes of your biography is, of course, the question of faith, how one behaves and conducts oneself in the world if one is a, a person of faith. But the other is, and there, this is very, pre presented very powerfully in your book, the whole issue of authority. Uh, to again be auto autobiographical since you started it, Kathy, um, as a as a child, I don't think I ever really believed in Catholicism. Um, my father was not Catholic and, and was clearly an agnostic, probably an atheist. Uh, and he once said to me, uh, when I was still quite young after my first communion, you don't really believe that stuff, do you? <laughs> uh, and my father was a very powerful authority figure. Mm. Uh, and that, and so here, my father, here is my father, but here is the church. Even when in a sense I was denying its teachings, it scared the hell out of me. Right. It oh, just, yeah. the, the, the whole, um, panoply of, uh, ceremony, the mass, uh, you know, the priests, um, the processions, the incense, um, People do walk away from it. I did, but it's difficult. Uh, it's it's a difficult struggle for for people. Probably more difficult than it was for me. Well, the reason I'm saying all this is because I think people who read your book are going to connect with that, and they're going to connect with, you know, Saint Francis, who did not grow up 
saying, I want to be a saint. No. You know, you might say something about that. Where did this guy, if we want to use contemporary language, right. where did he come from? Well, you know, and I, you know, it's interesting, and I'm, I am gonna, I'm gonna answer that question, and I, you have inspired me to understand how I accidentally backed into telling my own story. I felt I had to explain my sources and the choices I made, which we may or may not, and and I think when I did that, I had to start explaining where I was coming from, and that was the. Those were the, these, you know, that's how I ended up uh, re revealing myself. Um, so Francis, who was Francis in essence? Um, he, he was raised a merchant and I'm surprised, you know, a lot of people know nothing about him. And this sort of surprises me because he is an iconic figure that, and an international figure, but uh, born and supposedly 1182, that's the date is doubtful, raised, he was born into a wealthy merchant family, but, and he was expected to be that, but then he went on, he decided, uh, he tried being a soldier, and um, uh, that proved to be traumatic for him. So to find peace of mind, he turned to God. And the way he did made world history. I mean, suppose, you know, he's been portrayed as God's fool and God chose him. And the fact of the matter is that Francis chose God as a way to find peace of mind. And of course, in the process, he, he, he chose poverty. He chose to erase, to try to erase everything, comfort from his life. and live strictly according to the Gospels, and um, he attracted followers. So, and on he went. You can see how difficult it is to reduce. <laughs> it's hard for me to explain him simply, clearly, but that's the gist of it. Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, I kept thinking, too, you know, he, uh, although he submitted to the authority of church, I thought, you know, in many ways, he would have made a good Protestant. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And the reason he sub he submitted to the authority of the church was largely because, I mean, he believed. He be I guess he he believed in its authority, but he also believed completely in the Eucharist that it was the body and blood of Christ. That he this was his encounter with Christ, and he was not going to sever himself from that. Um, he, you know, the, the thing is, Francis took some of his best ideas from heretics, from those who did um, find, the, who, who chose to live a similar life. The Waldensians were heretics who lived, men and women together, traveling together, dedicated to a life of preaching and poverty. We hardly know anything about them today because partly because the church pretty much stomped them out. And but in submitting to the church, which ultimately did not bring him happiness at the end, he he entered into history. 
you know, um, the people who tried to shape who he truly was for their own ends um, ended up preserving him for us and for, for succeeding generations. It's, I mean, it's one of the interesting paradoxes of history and biography, I think. Oh, very much so, yeah. Um, so where does Claire come in? Well, Claire uh, is credited as the leader of his women's movement. Um, she was from a normal, noble family of Assisi. Uh, when she was a toddler, she and her noble family had to flee Assisi from violent townspeople, including Francis. And uh, as I say, she's always been portrayed as a woman who just was totally spiritual, which she was. But I, uh, she did not want the life that was being mapped out for her by her parents, which was to marry a wealthy noble, another wealthy noble of Assisi. And um, she, her cousin, Rufino, had joined Francis. And I think Francis was looking for a woman who could, he did want to expand his ideas in his movement to women as the Waldensians had. And so they met, he arranged to meet Claire, probably in a cathedral where they could both be you know, without disgrace, or she would not be seen with this uh, disgraceful Francis of Assisi. And he persuaded her to to join him. She was, he said that she would preach, that she was going to serve the lepers and the sick, and that was what she wanted. And the fact that the church ended up putting her in a cloister was his greatest shame. And, um, it, you know, it, it, she st he did, he, he fought for her as much as he was able to eventually, but he was not able to do much. And after his death, when they did succeed in, um, in putting, you know, close, supposedly locking the doors, they never actually succeeded in totally keeping her out of the world. Through letters, I mean, she Claire became famous when the first biography of him was written and produced after and published, as they in the way they did it then after his death. So, uh, one woman who read about Claire, who was so this interesting woman who followed Francis and was so admirable, was Agnes of Prague, Agnes of Bohemia, who was a princess of Bohemia. She was the sister of the daughter of one king, the sister of the next one. And she wanted, she was a very religious woman and knew something of the Franciscans. And she started this convent, but the convent that she started was much more uh, comfortable than the life she was reading about in Claire. And the two of them, um, I, I think through sympathetic follower, male followers, brothers of Francis, they had something of a correspondence in which, among other things, Claire urged um, Agnes not to listen to what the Pope wanted her to do. And eventually the Pope got hold of these letters and trouble ensued. I mean, that was the end of that. 
and uh, you know, so um, she was she was quite a fighter. She does not get credit for this at all. This is not how what she's known as as being for being and and she was religious i mean she did love god she but i think there was more to it you know just as francis was seeking peace of mind claire was seeking i'm going to call it self-determination or at least claire was seeking to live the way she wanted to live and the way she wanted to live was about knots it was about not being married not uh probably the family was very violent as most of the families were if i may judge um, mm-hmm. and i mean claire and francis were very clever about the way she came to join him they i think through the help of of lawyers who had joined Francis, they knew canon law, and they knew if she was at a place with a an altar, and she stayed by the altar when her male kinsman came to seize her, they couldn't they couldn't get her. But one problem was that then her sister, one of her two sisters, decided she wanted to join Claire, and this young woman was not acted on her own volition and in her own way. And um, when the kinsmen found her with Claire, they grabbed her, seized her, dragged her, pulled her hair, uh, pulled her, uh, extremely violent, extremely violent scene with some of the people, the, the townspeople cheering the nobles on. And apparently her uncle, he had a seizure, maybe a heart attack. And so in the hullabaloo over that, Agnes was able to escape and Claire was able to get um, Claire back to relative safety. And then the two of them uh, with, with another, with their cousin were able to start St. Damien, the convent that would be their home for the rest of their lives. You know, in some ways, um, Claire's, there's a kind of <clears throat> purity in Claire um, that makes her more Francis than Francis. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And it's interesting that you use the word purity. In many ways, Francis was much smarter than he was given credit for, by the way. But um, there is, she was, she was she i think she more she saw the people around her more clearly than perhaps francis did i mean claire knew that and maybe it it comes from being a woman raised in a world that was geared to men where she was always going to have to evaluate and judge and rethink she she was a lot smarter about what was going on around them than i think he was and she and and I tell you, I mean, it's interesting that you say more Francis and Francis because Francis knew at the end that he she was more truly his follower than most of his men. Uh, what happened? I mean, he always had a group of around, around him 
who were devoted to his earliest principles of of total dependence on the Lord. I mean, you did not cook for the next day. You only cooked, you know, one meal at a time and it appeared from somewhere. So, so when the church began to understand and see the popularity of Francis and how people trusted him and believed in him, they, they wanted to make him their own. And, um, and so, but if he was going to preach, then he had to know what he was talking about. And he and his followers had to know what they were talking about, which meant theology, which meant learning, um, you know, all the, the various knowledge they had of the nature of God and also uh, becoming priests. Now, Francis had wanted a movement of lay people, not of priests, although he, he did have some priests, a few, but it was largely a movement of laymen. But at the end of his life, so many educated priests had joined him that it was no longer his movement. And he himself was seen as a crank and an oddity and an embarrassment, particularly since his health was was really broken and he was just about blind and he needed to be led around. But Francis saw that Claire and the women who lived with her were the people who were still following him as he wished to be living the life that he wanted, rejecting property and all of that. So um, at the end of his life, he fled to her. I mean, he and he he heard, of course, both their health. They each broke through their extreme living. They gave themselves through, you know, the weakness of the body anyway. But they they shortened their lives. Yes. Listeners, you you would not want to follow their diets. (laughs) No, 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 no. You would lose weight, but not. No, no, not good. So anyway, um, he was told Claire was dying and that was enough for him. He, he went to see her and um, he lived in a hut outside her window, uh, the window of the convent, now convent where she was living. And um, what happened is that what, you know, he fled to her to restore his spirit and while living outside her window, he wrote his famous poem, The Canticle of the Sun, uh, which is, re- and he loved this. I mean, this is one of the funny things in the book, his, his great pride in his, in his work. We biographers can certainly understand that. But he was right to be proud because it's regarded as one of the earliest poems in Italian literature. And, and Pope Francis, the current pope who took his name from Francis, the first one to do so, which is kind of interesting. But anyway, a powerful statement. Yeah. Yeah. But very powerful statement, very powerful statement about the poor and about the environment, because, of course, Francis, with his love of nature, is uh, is hailed as the patron saint of the environment and someone who understood early on that the earth is sacred and, and, you know, which is not necessarily what many of our religions have stressed. You know, if they um, made a movie of your book, there's one scene in it. I want to see <laughs> where you talk about the, she's in essentially in lockup in her cloister and they got this big door that, you know, 
supposed to block her up, and then the door decays, falls apart. <laughs> I think that's just fabulous. I I love that scene, and I totally I mean I totally agree with you. It is one of great powers. She, um, you know the the Pope, and I must say. It was Cardinal Ugolino, who was allegedly a friend of Francis, but who tried to control him and pretty much did so and also tried to control Claire. And it became Pope about a few months after Francis died. So anyway, he provided this, uh, the rules and regulations for the convent he intended Claire to live in. And the door, the construction of the door was one of the main really took up a lot of space in this thing. So uh, Claire- and I like her, building a wall. Well, you, well, that's a very interesting <laughs> idea. It was very much like building a wall. And uh, so the door, there it was, and it was locked and it was shut. And Claire was walking around one day and uh, the door fell on her and knocked her flat. <laughs> and everyone- um, I mean, the, the nuns were screaming in character. I mean, you can imagine. And they, I've, there were brothers also, there were brothers who lived in screaming distance and they came running and they, so they managed to get the door off her and Claire, they thought she was dead, but Claire looked up at them, stood up and walked away. And at that point, she was so accustomed to the life they had given her and thrust upon her and forced upon her that she hardly she hardly looked out the door she just walked walked into the house and i you know i i think what's what's also true and it's touching is that um and also maybe a little sad that after the pope really managed to cut off most of her contact with the outside world, although I, again, she, I'll say most of the contact with the outside world. That was the end of the life that she had wanted. And she really did turn to, to scripture, to, to God, to prayer. And I think that gave her meaning and sustenance and brought her to another you know a state of being and and hopefully joy that she lived in till the end of her life but she never gave up because uh in the end of her days she managed to uh having learned a great deal about convent life uh, I don't think she didn't pick up pen and paper. She supposedly did not read and write, but in she dictated and a rule of life for her nuns mm. and for her sisters. And it's uh, and probably because of her moral force and because she was, they couldn't. The Pope, who happened to be in Assisi when she was dying, the Pope couldn't didn't have it in him to deny her request. So he approved her rule for her convent and her convent only. And to that, to this day, that is the rule for the nuns of Assisi, Italy, living up in 
in the hill town and mm. and the the rest of the order uh is is different you know has a different yeah different rules and has forever they can own property and all of that so so now if we go back to the the very beginning of the podcast and you mentioned that you wrote about Ida Tarbell and Lucille O'Ball uh someone looks at it and they say well yeah the next logical thing for Kathleen to do is Francis and Claire <laughs> It reminds me of a review in the Wall Street Journal of my Rebecca West biography in which the reviewer was obviously scratching his head and saying, this guy wrote about Marilyn Monroe and then he's writing about Rebecca West? What's well, the connection? And, and you know, uh, I always say, what is the connection? The connection is me. Uh, well, I, I want to say, you may be uh, about to say this too, but what I see is you're writing about some powerful women. Well, yes, I mean, absolutely. And I must say, I found I found Claire indirectly. Um, you know, I mean, maybe, you know, I guess I used Francis to get to Claire, although I certainly found a new Claire and I, I love Francis, too. Um, yes, I mean, you may be one of the only people who can behaving in this bizarre way takes a certain amount of courage and impracticality, Carl. I don't know if you'll if you'll you may not agree, but in my life, that's, this is true. Yeah. But yes. I mean, these are, they're women. Uh, they're basically honorable and forces for good with a feeling for others. And they had impact. Uh, and I must say, Claire is the patron saint of television. So that links her to Lucille Ball. Uh -huh. but, but you're right. I, I mean, I have to say um, when I am, I have had, I have to, cop to this and I do this sheepishly in a way but it's all they're aspects of myself with Francis and Claire my Catholic upbringing Ida Tarbell my love of journalism as a force for good and as a way of life you know and I you know I love all the stories about journalism I'm a little more romantic about it than is justified. And of course, and the, for Lucille Ball, the, I'm funny. At least I make my friends laugh. I mean, I, <laughs> I try not to, you know, I mean, I, so I, and of course, I mean, she was truly incomparable. I, uh, you know, she, she gives joy, Lucille Ball. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, so, um, People will sometimes say to me, depending on what book of mine they know they know about or have read, and they say, oh, why don't you do so-and-so? That would be a good subject for a biography. Uh, and I have to say, I always tell them, I can't work that way. Right. Um, you know, there are things that lead a biographer to a subject. And as in your case, they often are personal. Uh, there's there's something in you that identifies with the person you want to write about. Doesn't mean you're the same. Doesn't even mean you have the same experiences. But there's something about those figures you say, oh, I have some sense of what they were going through. So that I can't just say, oh, so and so, I could make a lot of money, or I could yeah. do this, or I could do that. Or one biographer once said to me, well, now you've done West. You really need to stick with English subjects. And, you know, she didn't use the word brand. That's what we would say today. you yes. got to develop your brand. You know, everyone's got to know that, or, or if you write about movie stars, you got to continue to write about movie stars. 
because that's that's how you build your brand. Yes. No, you're very, I mean, and I think in some ways, it, the other way could be a more practical way to build a career, but I, yeah, yeah, but, but that's another, I had to do yeah, what the I, two of I to, the two of us have made some bad career choices. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's exactly right. And, <laughs> and I'm, I, you know, I'm alive and happy and for the, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a whole other subject i mean uh, yeah <laughs> tell us tell, tell tell us how this book got done how did it actually get published well this is the interesting another another interesting story i did set on the path of practicality and ignorance i suppose i uh a few years after my lucille ball book was published i presented uh, through an agent a proposal for the book Nobody wanted to hear me on Francis and Claire of Assisi, which I understand. If I had been a, I didn't have any credentials. I mean, you know, maybe if I'd been Kim Kardashian wanting to write about Francis and Claire, a publisher <laughs> would certainly have given me a book, but that's a contract, but never mind. So I, but still I could not let go. And I, the more I stayed with Francis, the more I found Claire. Then I was going to write about Claire. Then I was going to do Claire and Francis, uh, two books. And finally, I, I just thought I, everything failed. And I must say, in the years since my, I was rejected, um, um, I, the more I read, the more I learned. And the book that I wanted to write was wrong. And... Um, so, you know, I learned a lot and uh, interestingly enough, archeologists pretty much confirmed what I was suspecting because they got into Claire's original convent and saw how it had been changed and all that. So finally failing failed along with everything else. And I sat down and really finished the book, which I then self-published and that is an interesting experience. I'm and not a not a completely bad one. I find I'm actually having more fun than I had after either of my other two books, which were well received. As, you know, as there's a certain freedom in self-publishing. There is. I mean, there's a lot more typos, despite your best intentions. And in that, whenever I find one, I'm very upset. But because I fought anyway, um, so I'm sort of, you know it's it's an interesting route to take i clearly have a very hard head i have to do it my way and and like and, francis like francis like francis and i must say i did wonderful katherine holman who did the production and designed the jacket and um i mean there were other people involved and friends that who read parts of it and friends who kept me from walking out the window and you know so so I was not alone but I actually didn't tell some of my dearest friends are just dumbstruck that yeah. I did this book because I just and I couldn't cope I I chose I, well I guess I couldn't cope and I certainly chose not to cope with another book about them why are you writing about them you know, you know who yes. cares saints but yeah so I just didn't want to hear it and um 
I really just gnawed on my bone in the corner by myself uh, for the most part. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I think it all worked out. So. Oh, I think it did. I think that one of the things that listeners should know when they read your book is they're going to be aware of the whole world of scholarship involving these figures. It isn't just that you wanted to write about them, but you, you write about them with some deep sense of knowledge about how they've been written about before. Well, I thank you. And of course, I have footnotes, many, many footnotes, very difficult to proofread and footnotes in the paperback and then on the website, the so-called landing page or whatever it is for the book, for the electronic version, the footnotes are on the website. Um, Yes. And I, you know, and that you raised an interesting point, as you do. my my main materials were books that were written close to the time of Francis and Claire. Um, the closer, the better, really. But a hagiography to a large extent. But um, I have had to evaluate them according to who wrote them and what was their agenda. And because they all had one agenda or another. And, um, and that was very helpful. But what I what was most helpful was to, you know, to, to take the stories that were more human than spiritually uplifting. You know, Francis, at the end of his life, his cell caught on fire, his, you know, with cell being the room where he lived or the hut or wherever he was in at, at Portioncola, which he loved so much anyway. So the brothers rushed in to save him and to put out the fire and, you know, try to bring things under control. And Francis rushed back into his cell to grab a fur pelt that had kept him warm. And, (laughs) you know, he felt terrible that he had done this, that he'd been so selfish, blah, blah, blah. But it was so human. And that had to be real. You don't make that up for the greater glory of your subject. I mean, it was it totally it was understandable, but not the kind of thing you do when you're proving someone is saintly. Also, Claire, talking to her cat. I mean, that <laughs> is fabulous. And there was another, uh, you know, of course, the other people, the brothers are so interesting. And much of this is very funny. I mean, there is there. Anyway, uh, Brother Juniper, who has his own cartoon, as you know, uh, Brother Juniper was probably mentally challenged, and mm-hmm. but a man of a very good-hearted man, and he, one of the brothers, said, who was recovering from an illness, that he wished he could eat a pig's leg. <laughs> so Juniper went out with his knife, found a pig, cut the cut the leg off, and brought it back to uh, the community. And Francis knew they were in trouble because the the owner of the pig was livid. Was mm. I mean, as you can imagine, and um, and he sent Francis sent Juniper out to apologize and to explain and yada yada. And the man was hearing nothing of. He was in a total rage. Francis Francis kept sending Juniper out, and it was I mean. It, Francis was saying, oh, this, we are in major trouble here. Oh, my G, oh, my OMG or whatever, OMG. And, and I mean, that is human too. And he was right. But what happened is 
as it was always the case with Juniper, or usually the case, he um, he the owner ended up roasting a pig and bringing it to the community because he forgave them and everybody, and they were so so such good people and so nice and all of that. So, but that's the kind of thing you you know you read and you study and you read and you you study and of course some things just leap out at you so yeah. uh but that, and, that one yeah that one's a keeper that one goes into the movie too <laughs> yes i'm i yes we have to get you out to hollywood to uh <laughs> to plead my cause and you know um yeah i mean it just it, it, one of the things i must say i'm amazed so there has not been much mention in other books written through the centuries that the the famous fairs that took place in in Twile, I can't I'm not sure I say it you know that there were fairs yeah. merchants and this whole if you if you the life of the period um the crusades he was a man of peace at the time of the Crusades, of course, it's known that he went to the Sultan, but they, you know, the church didn't want to hear a lot of talk about peace when it was waging a crusade. So it's all matching, matching all these things up, this, this folklore, much of it folklore that has come to us with what was going on at the era, in the, in the era, made an enormous difference to me oh for sure yeah um what else should i have asked you i goodness you have certainly this has been a good uh a good uh really well, good for workout it's a good workout it's a good workout that's exactly <laughs> what it is and i feel i feel my brain has been exercised not not a headache but a good exercise for the brain i want to point out something very interesting that the, fem the feminist scholar carolyn bynum discovered and i think she became a macarthur feller fellow as a result she she says that medieval girls girls in the middle evil times fasted and did extreme penances to, uh, i'm going to say that i'm i hope that these young women were saintly and all of that but also it was a way to fight their parents to defy them hmm. to reject what their parents were giving them and I mean, I think it, of course, we needed Freud to come along, but uh, there was a lot more. These people were human as well as, as saintly. And I think, I think that's important. And I think, you know, at a time when many people betray, feel betrayed by their organized religions, whatever they may be, and I think they can all step up for a little examination. I mean, I think that's what one of the things that makes the fact that that Francis and Claire struggle too. I I think it gives new dimension to Francis and Claire and is helpful for us too. Oh, I think so. That's a good way to end, Kathy. <laughs> okay, I have blathered <laughs> on. I'm going to need a drink of water here, a whole okay. glass. Okay. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. It was, thank you so much. It was truly a pleasure. And I, I am your faithful listener. I take notes and I don't, I can't even multitask anymore. I have to sit and listen to these podcasts with paper 
and pencil because I get ideas. Maybe who knows? Maybe for a new subject. Who knows? Anyway, yeah. that's 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 to be continued. To be that's continued. A, tune in yeah. next week, folks. Okay. That's a, that's a good way to get on this podcast to be a faithful <laughs> listener. <laughs> yes. And the last thing I'm going to say is uh, to to tell listeners very soon. I'm not sure exactly when. But very soon, I will have a review of your book in the New York Sun, where I'm writing my weekly column on biography. Well, I am excited. I look, I, I really am, because I actually always enjoyed reading that paper and, and thinking about it, you know, what it, and so I'm glad it's back. I'm glad you're there. This is great, great for biography, and um and hopefully great for me. Okay. We'll see. Okay. Yeah, I hope so, too. Thanks a lot, Kathy. Thank you, Carl. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.